0: Today we're going to look at Judges chapter 6 in the Old Testament, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. So look at Judges, it's after the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and so you find Judges 6 in your Bible if you've got it. We'll have some slides up here. And we're going to look at the, God's unlikely army that he raises up with Gideon. We've talked about this in recent weeks that we think that we are uh, in a similar place, that the Lord is raising up an unlikely army here with unlikely leaders, unlikely servants in unlikely ways. So we're going to look at this passage and we're going to see really that this story is about an army of underdogs an army of underdogs, so today we're going to look at chapter 6, and it's really kind of the preparation of the army, and the preparation of the leader, Gideon, we'll take a closer look at him, and then next week, we'll look at the next chapter, Judges 7, that goes into great detail about the army, how the Lord selects the army, and how they engage in battle. Why in the world explore this, though? Why look at this? Amanda and I were talking yesterday, she said, I don't know if I've ever heard a sermon from Judges. Where is that? What is that? Sometimes we hear little stories, kind of felt board stories, where you may have heard something as a kid, and you think of Gideon blowing the trumpet. But there's a rich narrative here. So we're going to look at this rich story. But as New Testament people, the Lord is continuing to raise up his army. And we're part of that. So what was an army then engaged in literal physical battle, transfers into being a new covenant people, we don't engage in physical battle, but we're mobilized and empowered to engage in spiritual battle with spiritual forces to pray, to fast, to take the gospel where the gospel needs to be taken. And I just want to say, in, in a time like this, I've been thinking a lot about being a countercultural army, And I think the Lord is going to teach us some things about that. A counter cultural army of servant leaders who are ready to lay down our lives for Jesus, who aren't gripped with fear and anxiety and all that the the media wants us to feel. He wants all of that. The enemy wants all of that to take root in our hearts, and we're going to say, no, thank you. We're the army of the Lord. We're wise, we're cautious, we listen to our leaders. And this really informs who we are. We're a spiritual army here at Our Lord's and we're trying our best to cooperate with the Lord as he's speaking to us and showing us how to be a mobilized army. We keep saying we're not an audience, we're an army. So the Lord is training us in fresh ways, preparing us, sending us out, and we expect in the coming days, the coming years, to be mobilized in all kinds of ways. If you are a follower of Jesus, and if you're a member in this local church, you're in the army. And the question isn't, well, am I in the army? Am I a soldier? Am I called on mission? No, it's where. Where does the Lord have you? Your workplace is where he has you. You can be a soldier for Jesus and carry his kingdom there. Your school, wherever the Lord has you, in your family, The Lord is raising up an army. So let's look at Judges 6. I want to give a little bit of context for chapter 6 here, the book of Judges, so that we know a little bit. We're not just parachuting down into this book without a little bit of context. The book of Judges was written about 1,300 years before Christ, and it covers a period of about 300 years, so from about 1,300 B.C. to 1,000 B.C., and it's telling the story of right after Joshua leads the people into the promised land, there's this interim time before the kingship or the monarchy, and Judges tells some of those stories. There's 12 of these judges, and it has nothing to do with legislation or a court. Another word, the Hebrew word that's probably closer, would be like a chieftain. These are 12 local chieftains that the Lord raises up to try to bring some unity and to try to keep the people on track because they're constantly turning away from the Lord as a matter of fact one of the recurring themes in the book of judges involves three words and it's disobedience repentance and deliverance and so you see this cycle over and over again in the book of judges the people disobey they repent And the Lord delivers them. And so the Lord is raising up these 12 judges to be a part of that. And Gideon is right in the middle of it. He's the fifth of 12 judges. And so what I want us to look at today is four scenes in this story in chapter 6. And they give us four insights into God raising up an unlikely army. And raising up unlikely people to serve in that army. People like us. The first thing is found in verses 1 through 10. We're not going to read the whole chapter because it's especially long, but I'm going to read the first verses so that it kind of sets the stage for the rest of the story, and then we'll dip down into some other parts as we look at four scenes from Judges 6. This is the Word of God. I'm going to read from 6, 1 to 7, speaking about Israel's oppression. The Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. The hand of Midian prevailed over Israel. And because of Midian, the Israelites provided for themselves hiding places in the mountains, caves, and strongholds. For whenever the Israelites put in seed, they planted their crops. Look what happened. The Midianites And other neighbors, the Amalekites, and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the land as far as the neighborhood of Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. So they're basically desert pirates who are coming in and looting the Israelites over and over and over again for seven years. Look at verse 5. For they and their livestock would come up, and they would even bring their tents as thick as locusts. Neither they nor their camels could be counted, and so they wasted the land as they came in. Thus Israel was greatly impoverished because of Midian, and the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. Verse 7 When the Israelites cried to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to them. So the first point we see there, it's really in verses 1 through 10, is that Israel's oppressed. And they call out to God. It was a dark day in Israel, At verse, verse 1, Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian. They were oppressed. They were oppressed. And I already mentioned this ongoing cycle of disobedience, repentance, and deliverance. And this is one of those cycles. They've disobeyed God. They haven't trusted him. They've turned, as we'll see in a few minutes, to other gods. They're worshiping other gods. It's really affected them, gotten between them and God. And now the Midianites and the Amalekites are attacking them. Look at the language that's used here. They're described as locusts. Verse 5. And locusts in the ancient world were terrifying because they would come in and consume your crops. And then you would starve to death. And so the text is saying here that these enemies were like stripping locusts. Kids, listen to me. How many of you have encountered a bully at school? Let me see, anybody? I can think of two or three bullies at school. I like that, I've got a 55-year-old kid over here that raised his hand. It's all about perception, isn't it? Um, Bullies at school. Well, these people were surrounded by bullies. They were coming and knocking them down and taking their money, taking their lunch, taking their lunch money, stealing their shoes, the things that bullies do. And the people got so desperate that they finally called out to the Lord. Look at verse 6. They're in the state of oppression, they're impoverished, the pirates, the locusts, the bullies are all over them, and they finally cry out to the Lord at verse 6 for help. Now, we may not be living 1,300 years before Christ, but you know what? We're oppressed too. The enemy oppresses us. He's a professional oppressor. And he finds every way that he can to oppress all people, to oppress Christians. So what I want to ask today is, what are we doing about it? How desperate are you? How desperate am I? How desperate are we? As we look around, I don't know if... I've seen a time of oppression like this, spiritual oppression. Look at what's going on in our country, the enemy doing everything he can to disunify us, to make a mockery of Christians. Are we desperate? I wanna encourage us as we read this text to cry out to the Lord for help. This is the word of the Lord. It was the word of the Lord for them And it's the word of the Lord for us. Friends, desperation is a good thing. Being comfortable. Being satisfied. Being content. Saying, yeah, I'm I'm cool with some oppression. It's okay. I look around at my neighbors and I see their marriages thrashed, their kids strung out. You know what? That's okay. As long as stuff is functional in my house, I'm okay. I just don't think that's the kingdom way. I think the Lord is inviting us into a place of joyful desperation before him. We'll see it's not a heavy yoke at all. The grace of God is there. And look what the text says. In response to Israel getting desperate and crying out to the Lord, what happens? There at verse seven and eight. What's the Lord do? You at home, what's the Lord do? sends a prophet. This is the way that the Lord has done it and continues to do it. And what does the prophet do? You can look at this text. We've got to look at some others, but basically the prophet is reminding the people of who God is and what God has done and who they are. And this is what the Lord continues to do. We cry out to the Lord and the Lord may send prophets, but the Lord raises up prophetic people and his prophetic church. He pours out the spirit of prophecy, like Acts 2 says. And now all of God's people carry the prophetic spirit. So as we cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, would you move? Would you intervene? Would you bring breakthrough? The Lord pours out the spirit of prophecy on all believers. Not just one, but all them. How long does this happen? Some Christians would say, well, prophecy ended. At the end of the first century, we have the canon of Scripture. We don't need prophecy anymore. We have the written Word of God. It's not true. Write this down and look at it later. Ephesians 4, 11 through 13 mentions prophecy and prophets will be functioning along with the four others, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, until the church is fully mature until the church comes into full maturity so this text urges us to cry out desperately Lord set us free from oppression bring breakthrough for our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers and I expect the Lord to continue to pour out the prophetic spirit so that we hear his voice we know what he's up to We get battle plans from him through the Holy Spirit. A second thing, look at verses 11 through 27 here as we're looking at God raising up an unlikely leader to lead an unlikely army. Verses 11 through 27. I'm gonna read 11 through 16 again to just get a taste of it here. And this is about Gideon being called. Verse 11 The angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash. A lot of interesting names here, huh? I wish I could hand the mic to Colt and say, Colt, pronounce all of these names. I actually have to get online sometimes and figure out how they're transliterated here, how they're spoken. So, which belonged to Joash, the Abizarite, and his son Gideon, who was beating out wheat in the winepress we'll come back and look at that, to hide it from the Midianites. Look at verse 12. The angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and said to him, "'The Lord is with you, you mighty warrior.'" Gideon answered him, maybe with a smile, as he's hiding out. (laughs) But sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our ancestors recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has cast us off and given us into the hand of Midian. Then the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. I hereby commission you. Gideon responded, but sir, how can I deliver Israel? My clan is the weakest and Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord said to him, but I will be with you, and you will strike down the Midianites, every one of them. So we see here in 11 through 27, Gideon's a farmer. The Lord chose a farmer. And this is a really confident, courageous farmer, isn't he? Look at the text. Where do you normally picture someone sifting wheat it's certainly not in a semi cave like place a wine press and yet that's where he is gideon is hiding out in a wine press it's kind of a cavernous place where you would take the grapes and stomp on them and he is in there tossing the wheat in the air to sift it so that it, the hole falls away from the wheat and he is hiding out why we saw the pirates are around them all the time. The Midianites are poised to take the grain all the time. And so Gideon is there hiding out and the angel of the Lord appears to him, says something that, I don't know, might be rather humorous. The Lord is with you, you mighty warrior. But it's how the Lord saw him. The Lord saw him as a mighty warrior and was basically calling him into that. He said, you're chicken now. Now, But I see you as a mighty warrior. You're a mighty man of God. You're going to lead my army. And you're going to live into the word of the Lord that's being spoken to you. Amen? Now, this is rather strange. We're not going to spend much time on it. But the angel of the Lord is a a figure that crops up in the Old Testament over and over again. And I think this is a really good example of who is this? The text basically says that it's a messenger of the Lord, doesn't it? Verse 12, the angel, the messenger of the Lord, appears to him. But then look at verse 14. Look at this. What's the text say? So we have the angel or the messenger of the Lord, and then what at verse 14? The Lord. So scholars see here, The angel of the Lord actually, at times, represents the Lord himself. I love this quote. One theologian says that a visible manifestation of the Lord's presence in human form is what this angel of the Lord is, and it points, becomes transparent to the Lord himself. Now, some of you are going, ah, rock, you're on this theological jag, it's not very interesting. You know what, friends? It is. You know why? This paves the way for the incarnation. The doctrine of the incarnation of Christ, the word of God, as the apostle John speaks about in John 1, is paved right here. There is some appearance, physical appearance of Yahweh in the person of the angel of the Lord and it's the Lord himself. So, Christians have wrestled with texts like this for a couple thousand years trying to figure it out. And all I can tell you is that this makes the incarnation a biblical doctrine, even in the Old Testament. Jews, why can't you see this? The exalted God of heaven actually physically appears and speaks, and it's Him. It's all there, friends. It's that the Old Testament lays it all out that there is an exalted God in heaven, the father of his people, and his Messiah appears at moments like this to bring the word of the Lord. What happens in this little moment here, this exchange, it's called a call narrative. And so when you find it, you, you find these elements in here. In Exodus 3, when Moses gets called, you find the same thing. The Lord appears. It's called a theophany, an appearance of God. A call, a commission takes place. Here, it's the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And then look what happens. He says, oh yes, I freely receive that call and I'm up to the task. Is that right? No, he gives excuses. What are his excuses here? How can I do this? Why? Look at the words that are used here. My clan, my family is the weakest and I am the least, probably means the youngest. And so he's giving excuses. And the reason he's an unlikely leader and this is an unlikely army is because this is the way the Lord works. It's the way he worked then. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 and 1 and 4, that the Lord chooses the foolish things to shame the wise. He chooses the weak to display his power. This is really hinting at the cross here, the symbol that we live under. God chooses weak, inadequate, broken, insecure people to be in his army. I'm in, anybody else today? I fit that category, I fit those criteria. So, I just want to ask us for a moment as we look at this text what might the Lord be calling you to do today? You're in his army, you're a soldier, you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you're filled with the gifts of God. What's he calling you to do? How's he been speaking to you over the last five or six weeks? Getting your priorities rearranged, saying, You're mighty. I am with you. I have great things for you to do. Friends, this is the word of the Lord for all of us. He has great things from the youngest to the oldest for all of us to do. We're in his army. Gideon goes on at verse 20 and following to interact with the angel of the Lord, who's the Lord himself. And it's a really interesting thing that we're not going to have time for, but essentially what happens is he presents the angel, the messenger of the Lord, the Lord himself with a meal, and he lays out meat and bread, and he's exercising in the ancient world hospitality, and while he's doing this, the angel of the Lord says, hey, put all of this on this rock right here. Gideon does it, and then fire shows up and consumes it, and Gideon thought, I was perceiving that I was being hospitable here, I didn't realize that this would be a sacrifice And friends, this is fascinating. The Lord is establishing a new altar in that moment. So all of a sudden we realize that the story really isn't even about Gideon or the bullies. The story is about worship. And the Lord says right here in enemy camp where they worship Baal, where they've turned their back on Yahweh. I am establishing an altar of worship right here. Game on. The battle is on. Right here. And so Gideon is really kind of awakening here to what's going on. He sees fire. He's realizing gradually, like many of us do, kind of bumbling along. What is the Lord up to? What's he? Whoa, this is the Lord himself. He's establishing an altar. He's calling his people back to pure worship. I'm going to name this altar, Peace Be With You. I'm going to name this altar, Jehovah Shalom. The peace of the Lord is here. And it becomes a turning point in Israel's history. The Lord goes on to call Gideon and say, I'm going to ask you, actually, in view of this altar that's being planted right here, Gideon, I'm telling you to go and destroy the altar of Baal on the high place here. What does Gideon do? The text says that he goes and he does it reluctantly at nighttime. (laughs) He realizes if he does it in the daytime that he's toast. They'll kill him. So he gets 10 men and they go secretly and tear down the altar of Baal. Look at verses 28 through 35. So Gideon is moving from a reluctant coward hiding out being bullied, and now he's starting to believe what God told him. You're a mighty warrior. I am with you. You will do these things. And so he, verses 28 through 35, actually tears down the altar. The townspeople end up finding out. And they come to Gideon's father and they say, hey, we hear that your son tore down the altar. We're angry. This is our God. And Gideon's father, rather than throwing him under the bus, you know what he says? He says, if Baal is a God, can't he contend for himself? And then that became Gideon's new nickname. Can Baal contend for himself? And it's similar to, it's before the story we'll read later on with Elijah having a battle with the false prophets at Baal. And so what's happening here, Baal's altar is destroyed. God's servant is learning to obey. What I was realizing as I was reading and praying and meditating on this text and praying for our church is that, friends, we are altars. Your heart is an altar. The fire of the Lord can come upon you. The altar of your heart. That's what this text says. Is give yourself to the Lord as an altar. You can carry his presence. You can supplant and destroy the false worship that's going on. Just by your mere presence. By living in contact with the Lord out there. A fourth thing happens here as we wrap up. Verses 36 through 40. This is really interesting. A sign is given. So we're seeing kind of an evolution, a development of Gideon here. From coward, reluctance. And now he's actually believing this call, this commission on him to lead God's unlikely army. The story goes like this. Gideon says... I will do these things, but can you please give me a sign just to confirm the word? And the Lord relents. The Lord says, yes, I'll give you a sign. And some of you know this, how the fleece works. He says, would you allow this fleece that I'm laying out to be wet with dew tomorrow so I can know for certain that you're calling me? This was a regular practice in the ancient world. Shepherds did this all the time out in the desert. They would lay a a fleece so that it could soak up moisture, and so it really wasn't much of a miracle at all. So the Lord, rather humorously, says, sure, I'll do that. So it happens. Gideon gets up, wrings the water out of the fleece, fills a bowl, able to drink it, keep himself alive, and he goes, Lord, can you do it one more time? But this time will you make the wool, the fleece dry and the ground wet all around it and the Lord relents in this moment. So really the text isn't about this being Gideon's example and we should lay fleeces out. You know what it's about, friends? How gracious and kind the Lord is with this coward. Anybody got a little Gideon in them? Anybody laid out fleeces before? I don't know, I'm probably in the four or five figures. I probably laid out seven, 800, maybe a 1,000 fleeces in my time. And the Lord is just so kind and gracious. I will hear something, someone will give me a word, and I'm like, Lord, I'll believe it, but can you just say it again? <laughs> can you demonstrate that that was really you? And not heartburn that I'm having or that that person is having. And the Lord relents, He's gracious. So it's not about an example. I really don't think that this text encourages us to lay fleeces out to test the Lord. But there are many, many times when we are weak and the Lord is speaking to us through His word, through others, and we test Him. And He's so gracious quote from one commentator named Barry Webb. Again, I, I reference these because these are people that give themselves to studying these books of the Bible. Barry Webb says this about Gideon. Being clothed with the spirit does not obliterate someone's personality and make one immune to the normal weaknesses entailed in being a fallen human being. In spite of his encounter with God, and possession or being filled with the spirit, spirit, Gideon still struggles to believe and act upon what he knows God has said. This passage shows us again the amazing grace of God in making allowance for Gideon's imperfection. Gideon's imperfections actually serve to magnify the grace of God. It is Yahweh's conduct rather than Gideon's, which is the example. So what we find here is Gideon embracing increasingly that he is a mighty warrior. He's growing in prayer. He's growing in confidence. Hey, at least the guy's praying, right? He wasn't even praying before. So now, even if he's going, Lord, I'm not sure I have much faith or confidence. I'm going to give you a test to pass. At least he's turning to the Lord. At least he's turning to the Lord. So these four things here, the Lord is raising up an unlikely army. He's using an unlikely leader here. We've talked about how the people grow increasingly desperate and call out to God. God raises up a leader. God continues to do that today as we call out to him in desperation. He's going to raise up servants and leaders here at this church in this region. He's going to mobilize people. Those leaders are going to obey. Lord, you want us to do what? You want us to share the gospel. You want us to serve the poor. You want us to plant a church. And then finally, God's servants pray with growing confidence. We all have a little Gideon in us. And the Lord is so kind and so gracious to grow us out of that. So Lord, I just, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you are raising up a mighty army. You're unifying your churches in this region. You're mobilizing us. You're filling us with your spirit. And I just ask you would continue to speak to us from this text even next week. You would show us how to be soldiers in your army. An army of love and redemption. An army of the gospel. We love you. We give you ourselves today afresh. Let's just do that. Let's just take a moment. Lord, we're your army. I'm going to encourage you to do that just for about a minute. Why don't you just give yourself this morning, just... If it's in your heart, Lord, I'm yours, mobilize me. Lord, we're your people, your army.